Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, December 11th, 2014. It's shaping up to be, well, an awful uh, Christmas season if you're uh, attending churches uh, that are part of the general seeker-driven evangelical world. <laughs> the Christmas se- uh, sermons are coming in, and I am oh, groaning, groaning. And, of course, today I feel like I've got way too much to do. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare with the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, authors, uh, people put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as people we need to be listening to, people whose sermons we need to be downloading on our podcast, people whose books we need to be buying to see if, well, what these uh, people are telling us actually squares with God's Word or if they are just, well, horribly twisting God's Word and teaching false doctrine and teaching for shameful gain things that they ought not to teach. So uh, it's kind of a daily exercise in, uh, well, in biblical discernment, yes, but it can be a little frustrating at times, too. You know, over and again, I ask the question, what has happened to Christ's church? Why is it that people who claim to be Christians, who claim to be Bible believers, have no clue what the Bible actually says, and anybody with just a bit of charisma, some good uh, public speaking skills, and uh, and a bizarre Bible twisting, you know, they'll they'll go for it every time, you know. Oh, especially if that guy has proved that he has God's blessing upon his ministry because he's been able to rapidly grow his church. I mean, that's everybody knows that if you have a rapidly growing church, you you well that that means that the blessing of God is upon you, and you can't possibly be saying anything that's twisted or distorted. Yeah, of course, you know, when I put it that way, a lot of people are going, well, now that you put it that way, yeah, mm, mm, yeah, maybe that's not the case. Right, exactly. And so we try to let the air out of the balloon, if you would, uh, by uh, popping it with just some basic, good biblical hermeneutics. Now, th- today's episode of Fighting for the Faith, I think I have enough for two episodes today. So um, <laughs> we're not going to get to all of it. And in fact, I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm going to hold back some. Uh, for tomorrow, but let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Uh, we are going to begin with a Perry Stone update, Perry Stone, and uh, we're going to <laughs> listen to a episode of his manifest, oh, what a miserable name, 
Manifest television program where he's going to be talking about the Genesis Apocalypse Code. You know, I feel like we should have some dramatic music in the background, you know, playing the Genesis Apocalypse Code. And, and you know, and, yeah, here, here. Yes, uh, there's a code hidden somewhere in the book of Genesis. But don't worry. You do not need to have a, a, a feeling of our, uh, uh, ominous foreboding. Yeah, Perry Stone has cracked the uh, Genesis Apocalypse Code. It, people think this guy is a Bible teacher? Yeah, man. Um, so we're going to check in with the Genesis Apocalypse Code. We'll switch gears and we'll do a vision casting leader update. Uh, we're going to head down to the Verve in uh, Las Vegas and listen to Vince Antonucci um, open up his latest sermon where he preaches on the <clears throat> spiritual principles found in the video game Pac-Man. Yeah. Um <laughs> I, you know, I grew up when Pac-Man, I, I was a kid when Pac-Man actually came onto the scene. I remember Pong. I remember Asteroids. Boy, that was a, that, Asteroids was a game changer. And then Pac-Man came on the scene and, I mean, this is what launched the whole video game revolution. I mean, so, you know, Pac-Man was right there, foundational, epic video game that every kid had to play, including myself. And, uh, but, you know, I never stopped to consider the um, <laughs> the spiritual insights and biblical principles that uh, were there, right there in the uh, in the video game Pac-Man. So uh, we'll <laughs> yeah, this ought to just be interesting. And we'll take a break. When we come back from the break, uh, we're going to check in with Perry Noble, the Perry Noble Leadership Podcast. And we're going to listen to a large swath of the recent uh, installment of the Perry Noble Leadership Podcast as he is preparing seeker-driven leaders, vision-casting leaders uh, for the Christmas season. And the the crass pragmatism and the just weird things that this guy says, I mean, it kind of basically lets you know that, hey, listen, you know, seeker-driven churches, they're not churches. It's a show. So, yeah. Um, if we have time, I do have a um, a, a TD Jakes update, but I don't think we're going to have time. So I'm, I'm, you know, for the rest of the things on the list, I think I'm going to hang on until tomorrow. But uh, so you know, it just depends on how fast we're able to burn through the other stuff. And then in hour number two, we're going to head down to Twelve Stone Church, and we're going to listen to a sermon. And I I need to set this up kind of here in hour number one. Let me ask you this question: Does every single biblical passage have a life application in the form of something that you need to do. Now, think carefully about this for a second. Um, and what I mean by do, it's something physical that you do, something tangible and you know, in the form of obedience. If that's the case, then every biblical text is a law passage. Yeah, I want you to think about the implications of that. If every text some, some pastor can preach from is uh, is technic technically has a hidden application and something that you are to do in your life to make yourself more obedient or apply these principles to m improve your life kind of thing, then that means that every single biblical text is a law passage. That's not a good thing. Yeah, no. Believe it or not, there are some texts that are there that the application, 
the only thing that it's calling you to do is to believe it. Not do something, but to believe it. So when we get into the narratives for Christmas, you know, in in, in the uh, Gospels, um, are are there hidden applications that you're supposed to apply to your life? For instance, you know, when uh, the Virgin Mary, it's announced to her that uh, she's going to give birth to the Messiah, even though she's a virgin, does that mean that you have to apply some principle to your life because of the Virgin Mary? Or is that story recorded there so that you can believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing have life in his name? I want you to think about that. So this one of the things we talk about here at Fighting for the Faith is the difference between descriptive texts and prescriptive texts. And uh, let's just put it this way. The vast majority, there's a huge swath of um, of descriptive texts that don't have a prescription for you to apply to your life. Uh-huh. The, the, the thing that they're calling you to do is to believe what's being said there that's being done for you. The application is actually to believe, uh, not to uh, do something. So in hour number two, our sermon is going to be another Christmas sermon, uh, Seeker Driven Church, Twelve Stone Church, and uh, we're going to listen to the pastor there um, find applications for men um, to engage. It's kind of like you know the 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 biblical principle of obedience to the concept of engagement, and this is all drawn from the story of Joseph uh, from the Gospel text. So we'll take a look at that in hour number two. So uh, we've got just a ton of ground that we need to cover. And since we're going to begin with a um, a Perry Stone update, that requires us to do this. I'm a nut. I'm a nut. My life don't ever get in a rut. The head on my shoulders is so loose, and I ain't got sense. God gave a goose, Lord. I ain't crazy, but I'm a nut. Is it wetter underwater if you're there when it rains? Is it shorter to New York? Then it is by plane between myself and I. I wonder who's the dumber. Is it hotter down south than it is in the summer? I'm a nut. I'm a nut. My life don't ever get in a rut. The head on my shoulders is sort of loose, and I ain't got sense. God gave a goose, Lord. I all right, so uh, we're that's our Perry Stone update music. So uh, we're going to be listening to the por- a portion of a manifest episode. That's M A N N A F E S T manifest. It's the name of his television program, and he's in Israel. And um, the name of this episode is the Genesis Apocalypse Code. And you know, see, here's the thing: uh, the uh, people out there claiming to discover codes in the Bible. Yeah, it's 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 just some weird coincidence. Also, for the most part, they all seem to believe that not only did they discover the code, but they've cracked it, and uh, this makes them, you know, the teachers who are able to well finally tell us what the Bible really means. See, everybody else, well, they've got it wrong because they didn't know there was a code there. But uh, thanks to uh, Perry Stone, Perry Stone, well, he you know he's he's discovered a code in the book of uh, in Genesis that's apocalyptic, and since he's discovered this code, I mean that means that he has an inside track to understanding God's word. Well, that no other Bible teacher on the planet can claim to have. So uh, 
let's all you know go ahead and just you know if you if you are a teacher in Christ Church, resign and just you know surrender to the uh, the code cracking code discovery and code cracking abilities of um, Perry Stone. Here we go. Well, you probably know where I am. I'm in Israel. Directly in front of me, I can see the beautiful Sea of Galilee. I'm in one of the three major cities where Jesus ministered. He ministered in Capernaum. He ministered in Bethsaida. He ministered in Chorazim. This is an old synagogue in Chorazim. And uh, directly under this would have been the one back in Christ's day. And today on the Manifest Telecast, I have a message that I'm going to be sharing with you that is called the Genesis Apocalypse Code. This will be an absolutely extraordinary, interesting message if you love Bible prophecy. Now, mm, yeah, if, of course, if you don't, you know, well, then, you know, it won't be that interesting for you. But remember, he's discovered the code. He's cracked the code. That makes him better than any other Bible teacher on the planet. Let me talk to you a little bit about where the concept came from that I'm getting ready to share with you. For some of you watching me who have studied the Bible for years have perhaps not heard of this particular concept, how that the history of the world is encoded in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, but especially in the book of Genesis. I remember several years ago when we were in Israel, we were in Jerusalem, it was the year of 1988, and there was a rabbi who began to share with me some information about codes that were being found in the Bible. Now, this is years before Mr. Drosman wrote the book called The Bible Codes, and he began to share with me in 1988, he said, here's what's about to happen, and he said, Ceausescu, who is the head of Romania, will be killed, shot to death on a certain day in December. And I said, how do you know that? Because this was the month of November. He said, I know it based on what's called the Bible code. And so help me on that particular date, if that did not happen in Romania, and I never will forget, I called my dear friend Floyd Lahan and said, how did the rabbi know that? And he said, well, you know, he said that there was some kind of code found in the book of Genesis. Now, notice something here. Okay, well, this is a, this is a scintillating story, if you would. Um, and so n- now we're not reading the Bible to read the Bible and to understand what God has written there for our, you know, for our justification, for our sanctification, you know, to, for us to be edified and built up, for our minds to be transformed by the Word of God. You know, so it's it's not about reading the stories in Genesis about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And all of the things that took place, you know, prior to the flood and Adam and and the promise of the seed. No, 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 no. All of those letters, well, <laughs> they're all there in reality. You know, because the stories are interesting. Yeah, but no, what's the what's the really important part is that see, there's a code in there, and if you crack it, you can predict future events like the assassination of Ceausescu. Oh, now we're talking. Now this is really super duper practical. Let's let's forget about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the covenants and all that kind of stuff. Let's get to the real business, code cracking, so we can we can see what the biblical tea leaves have in store for us. Indicated that was going to happen. I never did a follow up with the rabbi to find out how he knew that. But then the Bible code story began to come out. Now we're not going to deal with today. The Bible codes, we're going to talk about, however, how the book of Genesis, which is the book of the beginning, is parallel to the events of the book of Revelation and the prophecies of the New Testament, and how to discover the end, you go back to the beginning. It was God himself that said, I declare the end from the beginning, and I declare the beginning from the end. Yeah, uh, citing, just you know, casually you know, referencing Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 10, 
doesn't actually mean that what God meant by that is is that that means he told us about the end of the world in the book of Genesis. Yeah, the book of Genesis, uh, Genesis Bereshit, uh, is talking about the beginning, you know, our origins and the beginning of the covenant and, you know, important things like that. Um, so yeah, if you, you, I don't, when I, when I look for eschatology in God's word, I don't find myself trying to crack codes in the book of Genesis. Instead, I go to the clear passages throughout scripture that pertain to the end of times. Book of Daniel has some eschatological portions to it. Uh, the book of Matthew, yeah, Luke have uh, some eschatological portions to it. First and second Thessalonians, have eschatological portions to him. Book of Revelation is, you know, clearly eschatological. So, yeah. So, why am I? Why am I going to turn Genesis into an eschatological book when it isn't? Um, and then do so by means of discovering and then cracking a code, all because you've quoted Isaiah forty-six, not even quoted it. You know, just reference Isaiah forty-six nine and ten out of context. We're going to get into that. Now, a couple things that I need to uh, share with you to sort of lay the foundation out here, and that is how does God count time? Those of you that have been in our conferences know that we teach on this quite extensively from time to time. How does God count time? See, time in the beginning, uh, it existed in the sense of the sun and the moon and the stars were always there. And, of course, you know how the moon determines the cycles of the month. No, the sun, the moon, and the stars were not always there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's what the opening sentence of Genesis says. Bereshit bara Elohim eth hashemayim vaeth ha'eretz, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So no, the uh, sun, moon, and stars were not always there. What you just said is flat out contradicted by the very first sentence of the Bible determines the day, but also the rotation of the earth around the sun determines the year cycle. So God put the cosmic, um, the, the sun and moon and stars, what we call the cosmic powers in the heaven. And he did so, so that he would be able to, earthly men would be able to determine the times and the seasons from an earthly perspective. Now, one of the things that's interesting is, and this is what I want to get into for the next few moments, is when we are living on earth, time is counted three different ways, three different ways. So I want you to follow me very carefully. There is what I call horizontal time or lineal time. In other words, that particular... what you call, you call it horizontal time or linear time. Okay. Uh-huh. Time or linear time or horizontal time is you have a beginning yeah. and you have an ending to it. The beginning of our time, let's picture a line, just picture a timeline here. But the beginning of our time started with Adam's fall from the garden. That's when God started counting time and Adam lived to be 930. Yeah. Where in the Bible does it say that that's where God began to start counting time? It was when Adam and Eve fell. Where does scripture say that? I mean, the reality of the situation is, is that all the way back in Genesis chapter one, uh, God references time. And uh, <clears throat> let's let's take a look at Genesis chapter one. Yeah, we keep reading it. Yeah, I mean, I keep referencing it. Let's take a look at it. Genesis chapter one, verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. 
And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Wait a second. If God's counting up days, he's doing so in the time-space continuum, And so we already have the beginning of God counting time. Time begins from the moment God creates the heavens and the earth and separates light from darkness. Day and night equal first day. We'll read a little bit more. And there was, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, uh, Rachia, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters from under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And catch this. And there was evening and there was morning. Uh-huh. The second day. Whoa, wait a second. It's, it's, it's as if God's counting time. It's like you got God creates the heavens and the earth, separates light from darkness. Boom, that's day one. And then he, you know, he does this expanse thing and and separates the waters and and creates the heavens and all this kind of stuff. And now there's two. And last time I checked, two is greater than one. That means, get this, God is counting. This guy is a nut. Of age, and then he died. Now, that time will continue all the way to the end of the 1,000 year reign of Christ. Then, at the end of the millennial reign, after the great white throne judgment in, in the book of Revelation, time is absolutely no more. And we step into something which is called eternity. And eternity is timelessness. That's the zone in the realm that God lives in now. Now, the second. Mm-hmm. Yeah, God lives in eternity now. But see, the thing is, is that God says he's going to create a new heavens. And a new earth. Uh-huh. And it's described as days without end. Mm-hmm. It sounds like there's time in the new earth, you know? Wait, time is counted. And I love to say it this way, is Jacob's ladder, which is vertical. Now, Jacob saw a, a vision of a ladder, and the bottom reached the earth, and the top reached the heaven. And he saw angels going up the ladder and angels coming down the ladder. And so this is what I call... Uh, spiritual time. In other words, when we were... <laughs> what? So, because of Jacob's ladder, there were angels going up and down the ladder. That means that there's, a, there's this new, there's this other type of time called spiritual time. I don't recall when I read the story of Jacob's ladder, you know, it, it impressing upon me, you know, hey, what we're dealing here with Jacob's ladder is a whole other type of time altogether, you know, spiritual time. Oh, boy. You know, of course, I do remember, you know, the days when there was that other type of time. It was called hammer time. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. My, 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 my music is so hard. Boy. 
touch this. Yeah, all right, enough of that. <laughs> so we got, uh, you know, the lateral time, spiritual time, and hammer time, you know. Uh, do I need to go on? I mean, seriously. I mean, when a teaching falls short this so this badly from the beginning, there's just no way to rescue it. Genesis Apocalypse Code? Yeah, I don't think so. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. Hey, Vince Antonucci update us. He gives us the spiritual insights of the video game Pac-Man, and then a Perry Noble update on, well, his leadership tips for uh, the Christmas season. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Hey, 
I have my rights! You can't do this to people! Oh, but I can. I can't believe that just happened! There's something seriously wrong with all of this. Oh, this is your captain speaking. Do not be alarmed. You are now free to move about the cabin and do as you please. Just whatever you do, don't question my actions or authority. So you're a brick salesperson, huh? Yep. But why on earth would you want to talk about something like that at a time like... Oh. Yeah. I'm thinking it's time that Mr. High and Mighty got relieved of his duties. It is now time for you all to buckle your seatbelts and hold on tight because we are about to start doing barrel rolls. He's going to do what? <laughs> Remember to always trust your pilots. I know what I'm doing. Oh, I do believe the ground is getting awfully close. more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Roseborough here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, beware of code crackers, uh, at least biblical code crackers. Yeah, they always claim to have the inside track to, you know, to unravel the code that they've discovered, and they're off. Uh, just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month, that's it, to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That is a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable too. Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota. Zip code 58208, and let me thank you for your support. We can't do what we're doing here without it. And a reminder, you know, uh, our, our Christmas bake sale is going on right now to 
help us make our budget for the end of the year. And uh, you can buy T-shirts and earrings. And, you know, my mom and mother-in-law actually made the earrings. But, yeah, visit FightingForTheFaith.com. Click on the Bake Sale uh, link at the top of the page and uh, get your pirate Christian radio paraphernalia and all proceeds go to help support Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And again, thank you for your support. We cannot, cannot, cannot do what we're doing here without it. Moving along. Time for a vision casting leader update. That's our vision casting leader update. That's uh, uh, Los Lobos Ministry Records uh, rendition of <clears throat> casting vision. Yeah, uh, that's uh, <laughs> sometimes I feel like uh, fighting for the faith is a musical, if you know what I mean. Anyway, uh, yeah, today especially. But uh, what we're going to be listening to is the opening f- from the recent sermon delivered by Vince Antonucci, the vision casting leader over there at uh, the Verve, Viva La Verve. In uh, Las Vegas, yeah, that's the name of their church, and um, he's pre- <laughs> he's preaching on well the spiritual insights of the video game 
Pac-Man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the name of the sermon series is Retro Arcade. Uh, the first sermon in the series, by the way, was entitled Pong. <laughs> Did you know there were spiritual insights to be gleaned from the uh, video game Pong? I had no idea. Um, but uh, neither did I know that uh, you could find spiritual insights from the video game Pac-Man. So without any further ado, here's Vince Antonucci to explain to us uh, what Pac-Man can teach us on our spiritual journey. Here we go. Today we are working under the assumption that there's something that we can learn from Pac-Man, the life lessons that we can get from Pac-Man. And, and I think what we learned from Pac-Man is uh, to eat incessantly, to be paranoid of ghosts coming up behind you, and when things get rough, take a pill. That's it. I kid, I kid. But, but I, I really do think there are things that we can learn from Pac-Man, because I think the game of Pac-Man is actually a whole lot like life. You know? Yeah, it's so much like life, I mean, that we can just, you know, close our Bibles and, you know, and put Pac-Man in the primary spot as you know on during pulpit time the sermon time uh to you know let's exegete the game pac-man right you and i we go through life and we're kind of taking it all in and we've got our, our maze of activities that we go through every day and everything is good but then we get confronted uh, sometimes we get confronted with a temptation and if we give into this temptation it's going to bring our life down it's going to hurt our relationships, maybe even hurt other people. Or sometimes as we run through the maze of our life, we're confronted with an opportunity. And if we can just seize this opportunity, it could raise us up to a, a better life, to, to the life that we want to live, right? And so we go through life and we're going through this normal maze when we're confronted with temptations or opportunities. And it's the same for Pac-Man. He would be running through the maze and suddenly he'd be confronted with ghosts and the ghosts would attack and they would try to eat up pac-man unless unless pac-man could eat a pill and if he ate one of those pills he would start uh, glowing and he would have a power that he didn't have a moment ago and so instead of the the ghosts attacking and eating him up he would attack and eat up the ghosts uh-huh yeah sounds just like a biblical story you know from the book of um yeah um I, yeah it uh, it's, it uh, this sounds just like the 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 story where um God tells um uh, uh, yeah this doesn't sound like a biblical text at all but uh, how much you want to bet he's going to find a way to try to link what he just said to a biblical text and I just yeah hang on to your hats. And I think really that's what we need, isn't it? Yeah. What what we need is a pill. Yeah. Well, I I need a. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't want to start anything like that because if I start taking pills while I'm doing fighting for the faith, I, it'll create a habit and you know, that'll become an addiction. That yeah, you know, I'm going to end up in rehab. You know, I've got to stay away from things like that while producing and uh, recording this program. But what we need is something that will give us a strength that we don't have. So when we're confronted with temptations, we've got the strength to overcome them instead of getting eaten up by them. And, and when we're confronted with opportunities, instead of you know, not grabbing it because of fear, because we're, we're just used to the life. No, we seize them and we escalate our lives to something greater. 
Like, <laughs> what? Oh, man. Pac-Man, what we need is a pill that gives us a strength, not our own. Uh, but is there such a pill? Okay, yeah, that, 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 that is the profound question of the sermon, I'm sure. I want to show you something in the Bible. If you have a Bible with you today, open. Uh, it's uh, the book of Exodus, which is the second book of the Bible. Real easy to find. There's Genesis, kind of a big book, and then Exodus, chapter 34. If you don't have a Bible, totally. <laughs> Exodus 34. So this is um, about, you know, this is like post-Sinai kind of thing. Fine, we put all the verses on the screen. You can just read them up there. If you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you one today on your way out. If you want to grab one at the... Uh, the Velcro bar, there's a stack of them, free gift uh, for you. So, so here's the setting in Exodus 34. It's a story about a guy named Moses who uh, God had made the leader of the Israelite people. Uh, the Israelites were the people back then who believed in and worshipped God. And uh, Moses would kind of represent the Israelites before God. And he would represent God before the Israelites. So he would go and he would meet with God like Kind of like face to face. He would talk with God and then he would go back to the Israelite people and he would report on what God had to say to them. So let's check out Exodus 34, starting in verse uh, 29. We'll put it on the- So Moses is just like Pac Man? In what way? On the screen. It says, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, which is where he would meet with God, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, He was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his... Okay. (laughs) So, because in the game Pac-Man, when you eat the pill, Pac-Man start, you know, he kind of glows and the ghosts start running away. See, Moses, his face was glowing. That means... Moses was just like Pac-Man. Wow, I can't believe I missed that. His face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, so Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near him, and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil... Over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. So, uh, Moses had been with God. God had been speaking to him kind of face to face. And Moses' face would be glowing. Think about that for a second, because that's just kind of weird, isn't it? It's pretty... Yeah, no, what's weird is that you think this has is best explained via the metaphor of Pac-Man. Pretty weird. And after a while, it's got to totally annoy your wife. She's like... Would you turn that thing off? I'm trying to sleep here, right? Uh, it, but it'd be great on, like, camping trips. You'd be like, we don't need flashlights. Just bring Moses. Kind of point him in the direction, right? So, so Moses' face would be glowing. And it, it's just really weird. It's a weird part of the story. But at the same time, I think it's what we all want. <laughs> what? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>
all I want for Christmas is my glowing face. Yeah, I, this is just... <sighs> yeah, you know, there, there's, there you go, the first, you know, f- five minutes of the sermon. And um, kind of like with uh, Perry Stone, um, yeah, when, when a message starts off this way, the chances of it landing on its feet and actually being a sound message that correctly handles God's word and calls us to repentant faith in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins is truly a right handling of God's word properly distinguishes between law and gospel, sin, grace, repentance, and the forgiveness of sins, and and uh, and really uh, through the power of the Spirit helps us keep you know bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. I mean, this is basically uh, an example of what it means when somebody thinks that God's word is irrelevant. Therefore, he has to try to make it relevant by you know, pulling in the pop culture, you know, because everybody knows as soon as you, if you preach the Bible, nobody will come. But as soon as you say, hey, I'm going to be preaching on Pac-Man, well, oh, droves of people will uh, come to uh, listen. And you can have a megachurch if you do that, you know. Moving along. Time for a Perry Noble update. Oh, it really doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as long as I do it with a flair. What effect a little smoke is with a dash of hocus pocus and the scent of burning sulfur in the air. I'm a fraud, a poke, a charlatan, a joke, but they love me everywhere. For it really doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as long as I do it with a flare. All right, yeah, that's um, from Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Uh, with a flair. Now, uh, what we're going to be listening to is the Perry Noble Leadership Podcast, and uh, we're going to hear Perry and one of his associate pastors who uh, does the uh, podcast with him discussing the importance of, you know, how to properly prepare, well, seeker-driven leaders who are listening to Perry Noble's Leadership Podcast to prepare and to capitalize on the uh, Christmas season. And, uh, you know, Perry says that this is, well, the Christmas season. Well, it, it, it literally is like the Super Bowl. And so here's some very pragmatic, very crass pragmatic advice and, and, and how to really prepare as a leader and prepare your congregation uh, for Christmas. Here we go. Well, hello and welcome to the December 2014 edition of the Perry Noble Leadership Podcast. Woo-hoo. My name's Shane. Actually, this is the first edition of the December 2014 Leadership Podcast because this month we're going to release two podcasts. Merry Christmas. Merry to Christmas. You. Merry uh, Christmas to you. I'm singing Happy Birthday. Dang it. Oh, all you right, are. Keep going. Yeah, my oh, bad. My, we, we will definitely leave that in. I am you all will, for you, Christmas you may be mocked for that. I will be mocked. That's, that's okay. fine. Hey, that's fine. Hey, okay, to so today we're going to jump right in to today's topic because obviously uh, we feel like this is something that could be pertinent to a lot of leaders. Leaders, especially church leaders listening out there. The topic is this, Christmas, it's coming. Here comes You know, <laughs> so here at New Spring, uh, Perry, you know, we refer to Christmas and even Easter as the Super Bowl. And we know that a lot of people um, who don't normally come to church will actually come to church on those Sundays. And we want to make sure we do the best job possible of telling the story and hopefully connecting to people or connecting people to a life-changing relationship with Jesus and even the church. Yeah, that would require to rightly handle God's word, correctly tell a story and proclaim Christ and him crucified for our sins and call people to repentant faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. 
Not something I've really known Perry Noble to do over the years, and unfortunately I've listened to a lot of his sermons, especially during the Super Bowl seasons, you know. So with Christmas on the horizon, we wanted to offer some practical tips on how to help churches get ready for Christmas. So with that, I want to jump right in with a question. Perry, we know all Sundays are important, but why is Christmas extra important? I think, and this is my personal opinion, um, but it's right. I think that Christmas is like the most important um, time of the year for, for the global church. And this is why, and Shane, you and I discovered this a couple years ago. Um, is it important because of the message of Christmas? What makes it important? We're Easter, like with our friends and with Jacob in Estonia. I know you're listening. Hey, hey, Jacob. Yep. Um, with all of our friends at Freedom Church. Yep. Um, Over Gary, in the UK. What's up, guys? Um, Easter isn't that big of a deal worldwide. But for some reason, Christmas is that one time a year that for some reason I found, you found, we found yep. that people are more likely to say yes to come to church. Uh-huh. Okay. It might have something to do with, you know, the message of Christmas. Run to us, a child is born. Run to us, a son is given. You know, he'll be called Emmanuel. Virgin will give birth. Run to you is born a savior this day in Bethlehem. You know, things like that. I mean, don't you think that message kind of like is the ultimate message of, that gives us hope in the midst of a very dark, sinful, and bleak world and existence? Yeah, the, maybe, just maybe, you know, that has something to do with it. Um, I, I saw a survey one time. Um, I w- don't, don't email me and ask me for the source because I don't know. Um, but it, the survey said that 25% of lost people would come to church if someone would simply take the time to invite them to church. My personal belief is that number increases exponentially simply because at the end of the day, you can drop the line, hey, it's Christmas. Why don't you at least come to church one time at Christmas? And a lot of people go, you know what? Yeah, that's right. I need, um, or, or this is it. Why don't you bring your kids to church for Christmas? I mean, people are more. So these are like sales lines and pitches that you're giving to people. Okay. Likely to say yes. And so would they be like, would they likely go if we say, hey, listen, you know, Christmas is all about Christ born for us, you know, the savior of the world. And tell them about Jesus and, you know, and then go find a church where that's going to be preached. Yeah. Every Sunday, we, we've got a saying around here that we don't surrender Sundays. Yeah. We don't say this is going to be a bad Sunday and drop it. But I think the the Sunday or the, the time around Christmas is some of the most valuable time a church can really take advantage of. So with that being said, Perry, where is a good take advantage of? Take advantage of. Uh-huh. Weird. Good place for a church to get started in preparing uh, for this most important Sunday. I think, and this is this is um, once again what we've learned over you know going on to fifteen years now, is I believe the best place. So the question has to do with preparing a congregation for Christmas, right? How do we do this? Well, let's see. Well, open up the biblical texts pertaining to the birth of our Savior and preach them. 
th- that seems like a good way to prepare people in a Christian congregation for Christmas, right? Well, I don't think that's what he's thinking about. To prepare your church for Christmas services is the two or three Sundays before the Christmas service. Now, at the time of this podcast, if you're a pastor, you, you know, you're busy, you downloaded it or whatever, you might only have one Sunday. Um, I would take that Sunday to do a message on why you should bring the ch- people to church for Christmas. Um, the- whoa, 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 whoa. You're not going to, you're not going to preach Christ and him born for us, the savior of the world. You're going to take an entire sermon or two to basically turn it into an Amway sales meeting. Does, does somebody get to go double diamond if if they get enough people in their downline coming to church? I mean, is that really the purpose of sermon time during a church service? The thing we've discovered is the hotter we can get the core about, and when I say core, your core people, that would be your staff, that'd be your, you know, volunteers. The more fired up you get them about something, the more you get them talking about it, tweeting about it, Instagramming about it or whatever, they, the more you get them excited the more likely they are to actually go out and invite people to church that don't know who Christ is. So you're going to dedicate one or two sermons to getting people to tweet and Instagram about the Christmas service coming up. You're not going to feed them God's word. You're going to whip them up into a frenzy so that they're motivated to tweet into Instagram. Really? And they come back. And so the best place to start is getting your people excited, casting vision as to why Christmas is important and what casting vision, not preaching the word, but casting vision as to why Christmas is important. What is this? What you expect them to do, bring a lost person, bring what you expect them to do. Oh, yeah, that's right. He's the vision casting leader. The vision casting leader needs to send out the marching orders to the masses to let them know what the, what they are expected to do. Wow. So you go to church and the pastor's going to cast vision as to what he expects you to do for the upcoming Christmas service. Wow. Unbelievable. Bring a family member or a friend that does not know Christ or that is unchurched. Yeah, I love that. Set an expectation and then tell them what that really means. Yes. Ex- yeah, set an expectation. Is that what you're supposed to do during the sermon time? At church, excited about what we're excited about, and we have seen that work so well in the past. Um, well, obviously, let me, go ahead. let me pause right here because one of the things we talk to our staff about all the time is breaking the laws of assumptions that we've came up with. And one of the things, as a pastor, and I've experienced this, that we get frustrated with our church about is we'll do we'll put on a um, we'll go extra we'll we'll go out extra for christmas or easter but then we don't see as many people show up and the reason and 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 our people don't seem to be excited about it but we never taught them to be excited about it we never taught them it was okay to be excited about it ah yeah so you have to basically manipulate them set expectations and help whip them up into a frenzy so that they are excited about it so that they tweet and instagram and use social media to strong-arm people to come to your church where they're not going to hear God's word rightly preached. Right. 
we never included them in the process. And so we're placing unrealistic expectations on them. Where if, as a pastor or church leader, you get in front of people and say, this is what we're doing. This is what we're praying for. This is what we're expecting. This is what we're hoping for. It's more likely to fire up the people in your church that are already bought into your church. I'm, I'm telling you, man, don't waste a lot of time. And I'm not saying don't do this, but don't waste a lot of time on, you know, direct mail pieces or TV ads or newspaper ads. Take all of that money invest it in firing up your people and let them go. Because if they're excited about your church, they will bring people to your church. That's really good. Um, And the one thing we've learned too, Perry, in the past is you don't want to hold back what you're going to do for Christmas. Don't like, it's not a big secret. You're not going to win by revealing. Give the people a taste of what they're going to experience so they can get excited about it. Absolutely. uh, And invite their friends to it. Um, with that being, give them a taste of what they're going to experience. So you're basically want to give them a preview of what the details of the show is going to be. So it's like, you know, a movie trailer kind of thing, you know, put together some good movie trailers for your upcoming Christmas experience and what the details of the Christmas extravaganza are going to be this year. As, as a means of you know, creating that grassroots excitement, which will then lead to them tweeting and Instagramming so that they can strong-arm people to come to a church where Christ is not rightly preached. Right. And said, Perry, let's jump into, obviously, to do any kind of Christmas service, there's going to have to be some planning, maybe even extra planning uh, yes. for Christmas. So let me just start by asking this. Who are uh, at least at the initial... Your- Now, if you haven't executed this stage yet, it's too late this year, but you can do it next year. We started planning for Christmas in June. Wouldn't you say, Jim? That's about right. So just so you know, that little blurb, that was on their end, not mine. So we got together and had a meeting in June to prepare for Christmas. And and I just want to kind of pause here and talk to pastors and encourage them. The more time you can give your artist... As your creative, your worship, your video, whatever, the more time you can give them to prepare, the better service you're you're going to have. Uh huh. So the service isn't based upon the content of the service; it's based around the artwork and the videos and the you know and I see the the all the window dressings. That's the most important part, you know, because you're creating an experience, right? Um, the problem for years is I would come up with an idea on Thursday and want to implement it by Sunday. And, um, you know, they pulled it off, but there were like dead bodies everywhere. And so we said, Hey, the more time we give people to prepare the better job they're going to do, it sets them up for a win. And so we started talking about it in June and we started talking about the ideas and the concepts. We got the, you know, pieces rolling. And then you, the, the more in-depth, the more um, – in fact, Shane, a lot of the planning meetings now I don't come to because it – you know, are we going to do golf carts with uh, elves driving them? I mean, I remember that conversation one year, and I'm like, do I really need to be in the elf golf cart conversation? Golf carts with elves. Yeah, I, I did not know that that was an important part of a Christmas service. I totally miss that, and I'm a pastor. Weird. Conversation, but – it created the environment. I remember one year we had somebody from guest services say, hey, on this is when we just had one campus, but why don't we 
um, we got this big, huge honking Christmas tree in the middle of our atrium. And I'm just telling you, listen, people, Christmas is the one time a year you have to go traditional. You can't go. <laughs> yeah, don't go traditional any other time of the year, but you got to go traditional on Christmas. Uh-huh. Wonder why that is. By the way, traditional is not a style. Traditional is a message. The reason why people want to hear Christmas hymns and sing them is because of the message that's in them. So contemporary at Christmas. Our, one year, I, I never will forget, we tried to go completely contemporary and not do anything traditional, and I, our people were pissed. They were yeah. like, this is not cool. That's not, you know, you took everything out of Christmas, and we're like, well, we're trying to be young and cool and hip, and they're like, we're trying to be young, cool, and hip. I mean, this guy is, ta- I mean, he should be in a confessional confessing this is a sin. But it, yeah, we're trying to be young, cool, and hip, man. You know, we're, we're tr- if you're trying, that means you aren't that. So you're basically trying to create a false impression. Ay, ay, ay. I mean, <clears throat> okay, let's continue. Like, you're not. So Christmas is the one time a year you have to go somewhat traditional. You got to sing a Christmas. I'm, I'm not saying. Break, break out the candles because somebody's going to burn the church down. And I, I'm not saying that's the best idea. So going back to the Christmas tree, um, we put up this Christmas tree and there was a lady in the meeting. I never forget. She said, what we should do is we should um, I'll, like have a photo station and you can get your family photo in front of the Christmas tree. And I thought that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. We're not going to do that. I'm just thinking this. I'm not saying it out loud, but I'm thinking it in my mind. And finally, she made such a compelling case, and she's so sweet. We're like, okay, do it. And I remember walking out um, walking out of the atrium talking to people, and the line of people to get their picture taken at the Christmas tree? Oh, my gosh. I was blown away. So, so you need to have people in the room. Now, don't do 78 things because then it's like a carnival, and there's a church service involved. But, like, uh, I, rem- I never will forget the lady that came up with that idea. She was over guest services. Um, not only did she come up with the idea, but she executed the idea, and it was really, really, really great. So that's just something. I mean, get the the people, the greeters, the ushers, the people that are planning, the programming people. All of those people need to be on the same page. There needs to be no surprises to anyone on your Christmas services. That's really good. And speaking of the pictures by the Christmas tree, that's become something that we make sure is available and set up every single year. Something my wife enjoys. Yeah. I still, I'm still sitting there going, it's a Christmas Why tree, people. Why am I standing in front of this Christmas tree? Anyway, but it's, it, it really is yeah. one of those things that, you know, just bringing, I'm, I'm telling you, if you don't have a female in nearly every meeting you're doing, you're leaving something on the table because they just care more than we do as that's, guys. That's absolutely true. Yeah. I would be like, hey, why don't we hit people with a Christmas tree? We wouldn't even in? have Christmas decorations. None. Zero. If it was just up But I would sing a Christmas song because you got to sing Christmas songs. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't after, do that either. Well, I, after Thanksgiving. <laughs> after Thanksgiving. After Thanksgiving. Not at Halloween? No. Yeah. No. I think people that start celebrating Christmas at Halloween completely disrespect the pilgrims 100 percent disrespect the pilgrims the they might as well go set the mayflower on fire and burn it down um it's the worst pretty soon shane we're totally off topic right now 
we're going to start celebrating Christmas like on July 5th. I, I'm oh, convinced that I, it's like, okay, go ahead and set up for Christmas. Uh, I'm not being a Scrooge. I'm just saying it's not Christmas until you've eaten turkey and the Detroit Lions have lost. There you go. And, and um, they, they won this year. Yeah, the, the Detroit Lions game and the turkey at Thanksgiving, that actually kind of kicks off the Advent season, the season leading up to Christmas. Christmas doesn't actually historically begin right after Thanksgiving. That's when Advent starts. This year, actually. Oh, so that's right. Jesus is probably coming back. Hey, can I say one word to the artists out there? Word. You know, you mentioned to the pastors to give them time and the better work they'll do. And I think that's true. They'll do a better job. And you know what? They'll enjoy the fruit of their labor. Everybody wants that. But for any artist out there listening, if your pastor takes their time to prepare you for that, don't waste that time. Make sure that you actually use it and get ahead and make the most of the time that they give you. Because if you don't... Yeah, you don't need any procrastinating artists, you know, holding up the whole Christmas show. Don't, then there's no reason for them to do it. All right, I'm going to fast forward a little bit to, you know, toward the end of the podcast where he gets gives some more practical advice. You know, really salient advice, you know, for pragmatically preparing for uh, you know, Christmas services. Here we go. Uh one of the questions I had is, um, are there some things to consider for Christmas uh, other than things we've already talked about that maybe you don't always consider for normal Sundays throughout the year? I feel like at Christmas, you um, one of the things we've always done, and we just do this kind of out of respect for the holiday, is we tell our band members, hey, um, step up your dress a little bit on Christmas. Um, we tell our ushers, step up your dress a little bit. We don't say coats and ties. Now, right. actually, this year, there may be some tuxedos involved. There may, there may, there be. may be some tuxedos. Not, I'm not wearing one. Um, I would if it brought people to Jesus, but I don't think it would. But I think on Christmas, it's a time to step Do Do that thing, not for shock effect, but that surprising that will engage people that will pull them in. Like, one year we did the rock version of Carol the Bells, and it was just so cool. We've done Let It Snow and had a snow machine. Um, and it's one year though, this was when we were portable. We had we rented a cheap snow machine, and it <laughs> and it and it and it sent down a blob yeah. on top Clumps. of one of our singers' heads. And it yeah, this is nice shop talk talking about you know you know how to set up for the show. It was. We we shouldn't have done that, but it's live the, and learn. Yeah, it's the I think it's the Sunday where you where you show your people, hey, if you will invite people here, we will do whatever it takes to reach them and show them who Jesus is. Yeah, that's great. So, how much money you spend on the snow machine is a direct indicator as to your commitment to showing people who Jesus is. Wouldn't that simply be accomplished by ditching the snow machine and, you know, opening the biblical text and preaching the Christmas story from Luke and Matthew. Yeah, so there you go. Uh, <clears throat> Seeker-driven shop talk there. Uh, some sage, salient, pragmatic advice on uh, how to make your um, church service just you know, these Christmas extravaganza and magnet for uh, for lost people. You know, the way you do that is uh, make sure you spend a lot of time on the show and the details and, and don't even preach God's word for a couple of Sundays leading up to Christmas, but use that as a time 
to you know kind of uh, Amway style, you know, whip the, uh, the the masses up into a frenzy, so that they they'll be excited in Instagram and and Twitter and Facebook how excited they are about the upcoming Christmas show because that's really what he's describing, isn't it? That's a show. That's not. Um, that's not really what he's describing there as a church service. Pragmatic indeed, yeah. So fascinating listening to um, how these guys talk. Um, God's word, yeah, not yeah. <laughs> no, nothing in there was mentioned about the importance of making sure that you rightly understand the biblical text. That the texts really are the central theme there. If people are going to learn about Jesus if they're going to come to a church service once a year. Let's make sure. They hear about Christ. Let's make sure they hear the biblical message clearly and that they understand that the, that the reason why Jesus came into the world was because he is our Savior. He is the one who was promised all the way back in the Garden of Eden, the one who would come and crush the head of the serpent. And this, this is you know, a, a night for hope or a day for hope and, and you know, that God has done something radical in human history by becoming a man. And going to the cross, but no, 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 nothing about you know the importance of the biblical text. No, just make sure you spend enough money on the snow machine and whip your people up into a frenzy. Yeah, um, yeah, it's weird. Um, I'm a pastor, and none of the things he said actually apply to anything that we do at our church. Weird. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash Fire Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Fire Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to listen to another Christmassy kind of sermon, sort of, where um, there's applications and laws found that are not actually in the text. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. No, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean metachlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Hey, have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. 
ThinkGeek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. So uh, you've uh, whipped up your troops and got them into a frenzy. They're inviting people to come to church. The show is spectacular. And this is the kind of message that the unbeliever is going to hear when they show up for Christmas services. Was the hype and the time and the money well spent? Well, let's uh, take a listen. Let's do this right. And the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via 12 Stone Church, Pastor Miles Welsh presiding. The name of the sermon series is entitled Joseph, the Heart of a Man. Now, I asked the question in hour number one, so I'll repose it here in hour number two. Does every single biblical text have, uh, well, an unstated principle or law that you need to obey? An application, if you would. Well, if that's the case, then that means all of Scripture is nothing but law. And all descriptive texts are ultimately giving us hidden prescriptions. Uh Uh-huh. So as we read the story of Joseph... Uh, from the uh, gospel accounts, apparently uh, there's um, a, a, well a law that you're supposed to apply to your life as a man, and you need to be obedient to it. And uh, that's what we're going to hear Miles Welsh preaching about. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. And without any further ado, here is Miles Welch's Christmas sermon entitled, um, Joseph, the Heart of a Man. Here we go. All right, 12 Stone, how are you doing today? Awesome. Glad to be here. Today we start a new series called One Christmas, where we're going to unpack the Christmas story from the perspective of each of the main characters, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. See what we can learn about our hearts as we look at them. See what we can learn about our hearts. If by that you mean that we're sinners in need of a Savior, and the good news is that Christ was born of the Virgin Mary for us, and that he's our Savior, well, then I would go along with it. But what do you mean by our hearts here? Their lives. Today, we're actually going to be talking about Joseph and what's inside the heart of a man. So today, men, is for you, and uh, there's going to be a powerful challenge from God for you that's going to help you live out uh, your very best this Christmas season. Ladies, you're not off the hook. A powerful challenge from God to help you live out your very best this Christmas season. 
Well, as I mentally roll through the um, texts regarding Joseph in the uh, New Testament, I don't know what you're talking about as some kind of powerful challenge from God to help me live my best. What are you talking about? Hook, though, because uh, this message is also for you. It's going to help you better appreciate and pray for the men in your life. And there's going to be a challenge for you as well. So everyone is going to be challenged today. As a matter of fact, turn to the person next to you and say this. Buckle up. You're going to be challenged today. Uh, Hopefully I'm going to be challenged to believe that Jesus is the Savior. And turn back and say, you're not the boss of me. I do what I want. (laughs) Isn't that fun? Don't you like to say that? What's wrong with us that we like that? Well, the One Christmas series is important because Christmas is upon us. And Christmas can make us crazy, can't it? Now, how many of you believe and you know that Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year? How many of you just believe that? Of course it is, right? With all the time with family and the trees and the lights and the gifts and the food. What's not to like about Christmas? It can bring out the very, very best in us. But how many of you also believe that Christmas is the most crazy time of the year? Of course it is. With all that time with family, right? And the trees and the lights and the gifts and the food, it can bring out the very worst in us. It can make us go crazy. For some, crazy is just part of the Christmas tradition. I know it was in my house growing up. It seems like every year we found another way to go crazy. But I remember one year in particular where my family just lost it. I was nine years old, my brother was 11 years old, and it started when my mom uh, tasked, you know, assigned my dad to bring home a Christmas tree uh, from work. So my dad was supposed to on his way home pick up a Christmas tree. Normally we cut down a tree as a family. So I don't know what it was this year, but my mom wanted my dad to bring home a tree. So as Christmas approached, every day we would wait for my dad to get home and bring home a Christmas tree. And every day my dad didn't bring home a Christmas tree. I don't know why. Maybe he didn't like being told what to do and he was telling my mom, you're not the boss of me, I'll do what I want. But I do know that the pressure in my house was rising as Christmas was approaching and gifts began to pile up in the middle of our living room because there was no place to put them because we didn't have a tree until finally it was Christmas Eve, dad's last chance. And on Christmas Eve, my dad comes home, no Christmas tree. And my brother and I, we just look at my mom to see what mom's gonna do. You know, and mom doesn't say a word, but mom has a plan. She goes out into the garage and she comes back in with a can of green paint. And my mom paints on the wall of our living room, a giant triangle Christmas tree that happened at my house, you guys. And my brother and I had no, nothing in life prepares you for this, right? So we just took the gifts in the middle of the floor and we shoved them up to the wall. And that's where we had Christmas the next morning, right by the Christmas wall tree thing. Many of you are feeling great about your families right now, aren't you? You're feeling like Christmas, this is not going to be a problem. If we're not going to paint on the wall, we're great. We're fine. Very encouraging sermon already for you. Well, that's what Christmas can do to an otherwise sane family. And that's why this one Christmas series is so important. It's going to help bring out the best in us, make Christmas a little more wonderful, a little less crazy. And today we're talking about Joseph and what's inside the heart of a man. And so men today is... Yeah, are you talking about what's inside of a heart of a man like, you know, sin? Is that what you're talking about? It's all about us. 
I guess they picked the manliest pastor to talk on the man subject, right? That's how I got picked for this. Next week, uh, Pastor Kevin's going to talk about Mary and what's inside the heart of a woman. So I don't know what that means. I think I just lost my job right now, you guys. I think I, I might be out of work. If you're hiring, let me know. But men, today, God has a powerful challenge for you that's going to help you be at your very best this Christmas season. I want God has a powerful challenge for you that's going to help you be at your very best. Hmm, man, moralism. Is that what we're... Yeah, well, I smell hints of moralism in here. I want to deliver the challenge for you up front. Ladies, your challenge will come at the end. Men, I want to deliver the challenge now. It's a prayer challenge. It's to pray what I'm calling a prayer of engagement this Christmas season. Prayer of engagement? So the story of Joseph has something to do with engagement? That's the obedience step, the life takeaway transformational principle supposedly found in the biblical text to tell us about Joseph? Really? You can see it, the fill in the blanks at the bottom of your notes. Prayer of engagement. Go ahead and look at your notes. We'll fill in the blanks and we'll read it together a couple times. Here's the prayer of engagement. God, help me to show up, help me to step up, and help me to speak up. Now, men, say it with me. God, help me to show up. Yeah, I'm not praying this prayer. Help me to step up. And help me to speak up. One more time, like you mean it, men. God, help me. Yeah, clearly the men there are just thrilled about this prayer of engagement. They've been scratching their heads going, what is this? Help me to show up, help me to step up, and help me to speak up. That's the prayer of engagement. And I think God would have us pray this prayer of engagement. Why would God have us pray this prayer of engagement? You sounds like you just kind of knocked it out on your laptop or your iPad. This Christmas season, in three regular occasions, when we're driving to work, when we're driving home from work, and when we're driving to church. Oh, yeah, that special challenging prayer from God, apparently, the prayer of engagement. So, men, the challenge for us this Christmas season, when we're driving to work, God, help me to show up, help me to step up, help me to speak up so you'd be engaged at work. As we're driving home from work, God, help me to show up, help me to step up, help me to speak up so that we would be engaged at home. And then as we're driving to church on the weekend, God, help me to show up, help me to step up, help me to speak up so that we would be engaged at church. This is the challenge for us. And men, I'm encouraging and urging you to rise up to this challenge. And if they don't, are they sinning? If they haven't so far risen to this challenge, do they need to repent and to be forgiven? Did Jesus bleed and die for their lack of engagement? I mean, you can kind of make an argument that maybe that's a sin. You know, if you're talking about, you know, going derelict on your duties as a dad. Um, But why are you turning the story of Christmas and Joseph's participation in that story into a moralistic application. It's you're turning, you're basically taking a descriptive text that's telling us about the birth of our Savior, and turning it into a prescription for behavioral modification via the heart of the man kind of thing. Because if you do, it will bring out the very best in you this Christmas season. Really? So if I pray that prayer, it'll bring out the very best in me. If I don't, then I'm, I won't have the best for me show up, right? 
Boy, you're putting some big promises on that prayer. It has some high-powered sanctification power behind it. Because it's going to help you navigate the two competing, opposing desires that you have in your heart as a man. See, when we look at the Christmas story from the perspective of Joseph, we see that there are two competing, opposing desires in our hearts as men. And What? We need to understand these desires so that we would understand how important this prayer challenge is. So I'm going to give you... Uh So we got to... We'll see this in the biblical text, and then we'll understand how important the prayer challenge is. Uh Uh-huh. ...the two desires. It's also there in your notes, and then we'll unpack them one at a time. And my goal is to motivate you so that you would actually dive into the prayer challenge this Christmas. Let's talk about the two desires. The first one is a good desire that we need to lean into... Because it brings out the very best in us. And this good desire is to engage. Uh-huh. So there's a desire within me to engage, and that's a good desire because it brings out the best in me. And you, how are you seeing this in the Christmas story again? The good desire is to do what, men? Engage. We need to lean into this. It's a good desire. It's actually a God-given desire. But we also have an opposing, contradictory desire working against us. It's a desire that we need to fight against because it brings out the very worst in us. And it's the desire to disengage. Uh huh. So there's two competing desires. There's kind of like two wolves, you know. With the one that's going to grow is the one you feed, you know. The desire to do what, men? Disengage. See, we have these two desires within us that we need to understand if we're going to understand the importance of the prayer challenge. So let's unpack. Yeah, see, sermons like this would make me want to disengage from uh, the the church that delivered these kind of uh, sermons and found a church that actually proclaimed Christ. Pack them one at a time during the teaching today. First, let's talk about the desire to engage. Uh We can define what I mean by engage with three words. You might want to write these down, men. The first word is the word present. If, He's writing the word present on the board. If you're going to engage, then you need to be present. Uh, okay. To be present is to be physically, emotionally, mentally, relationally there. Okay. Yeah, all right. And this is in the Christmas story. Okay. You need to actually be there to be engaged. The second word is to be active. If you're going to engage, engage, then you need to be active. You need to be a so present active is the third word indicative. Never mind. A proactive participant in the things happening around you. And the third word is to be vocal. Present active and vocal, huh? And you promise this is in the Christmas story. To be vocal, to express the thoughts ideas, and feelings that you have bouncing around in your heart and in your mind. This is what it means to engage. And men, when we are present, active, and vocal, it brings out the very best in us. Now, there are times when a man will over-engage and when engagement goes wrong, as this short 20-second commercial clip shows of a man who's way too present, way too engaged, uh, way too uh, active, and way too vocal for his child's safety. Listen in. Hop on. You ready? Yeah, you're ready. 
Hang on tight. Here you go. You got it. Go. <laughs> you all right? <laughs> I love the fireworks at the end. That's not what I'm talking about. I, man, I want to help you be engaged in a way that doesn't lead to a crash. We need to rise up, men, into being present, active, and vocal, being engaged. Because this is now. Notice thus far, all of this this sermon contains are imperatives. You gotta, you gotta be present. You gotta be active. You gotta be engaged. You gotta be vocal. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta. Yeah, all imperatives is law preaching. Now, here's the question. Is this biblical law that we're hearing here? Which commandment is he actually referring to? Or is he seeing um, um, an, an implicit commandment supposedly there in the story of Joseph that we're supposed to be obedient to? That's all law. Now, Jesus is our Savior. He's come to save his people from their sins by dying for their sins. So, yeah, the idea then is is that if you're going to preach imperatives, which is law, the, the primary use of the law, according to Scripture, is to reveal that we're sinners. Mm-hmm. Now, the third use of the law is the use that says that as a Christian, God's law reveals what what it looks like to live in freedom from slavery and, you know, it, to the devil and to, and slavery to sin and slave, you know, that's, so the law is the law of perfect freedom. We've been set free from slavery to sin. And now the law reveals what God's will is for us Christians, how we're to live our lives in freedom. That's, you know, kind of third use of the law talk. But where in the Christmas story is is are these laws revealed that I'm supposed to be obeying in the sense that he's talking about as a man, I need to be engaged, present, active, and vocal. Yeah, just a cold reading of the Christmas stories, you know, that have Joseph in them. I, I don't see those imperatives. Instead, in what I see in the Christmas story is a historical narrative that has indicatives that tells us what Christ has done for us. To take a story that has indicatives in it and turn it into imperatives is to miss the whole point of, of those texts and to twist Scripture and turn gospel texts into law texts. That's what um, Miles Welch is doing here. We continue. We're at our very best. Now, whether you're married or dating or single, this message is for you. We have to rise up in engagement. Now, this teaching is going to lean into family because the Christmas story leans into family. But if that's not where you're at in life, then men, ask the Holy Spirit to help translate this teaching to where you're at and translate this challenge to where you're at. Because no matter where you're at and what stage of life you're in, man, you need to rise up into this engagement thing. It's when we're at our very best. You can see it when you look at the Christmas story from the perspective of Joseph. Okay, so this is, Joseph is going to teach me to rise up so I'm at my very best. Uh-huh. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to look at Joseph. If you don't have a Bible, there's one right under your seat. You can pull it out. It's page 966 
in your worship center Bible. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to make this one your own. It'd be our gift to you. Love for you to read it, gain valuable insight from what's inside of it. It'll change your life. Matthew chapter one. And we're going to look at three passages of scripture that show us the Christmas story from the perspective of Joseph. And what I want us to see is how Joseph rises up into this engagement thing. Let's start with verse 18 of chapter 1. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill. Yeah, um, did you catch that part? Because he will save his people from their sins. This is a gospel text. This is a gospel proclamation. What the Lord said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he didn't consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Now, in this first passage, I want you to see Joseph already spiritually engaged, already connected to the law, already hearing the voice of God, and he becomes engaged, present, active, vocal in the life of Mary as a husband and, the, and in the life of Jesus. Oh, okay. So because he, be, he was engaged, this is like Aesop's fables. Um, so, you, you know, the, the imperative here for us men is we, you know, we need to be engaged just the way Joseph was. Don't you think the important sentence is that you shall name him Jesus for he, Jesus, will save his people from their sins? All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. I mean, don't you think the person who's really engaged here is God coming, being born of the Virgin Mary? taking on human flesh in order to save humanity. I mean, let's talk about engagement here. God is really engaged right now to save us sinners. And you, you're just going to miss, you're going to skip that part about save his people from their sins and key in on, well, look at We can kind of see here that look, Joseph, he looks like he's, he's being engaged and, and men, we got to be engaged the way that Joseph was. Yeah, that, that's kind of to miss the whole point of the text. Is this was, well, let's put it this way. Did God the Holy Spirit inspire Matthew to write this down so that we men would learn how to be more engaged? As a father. Now, chapter 2 begins with a familiar story of the Magi visiting Jesus and bringing gifts to Jesus But in verse 13 of chapter 2, we come back to the story of Joseph. It says, When they had gone, talking about the Magi, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill. Did you notice that by taking the story and picking it apart, 
rather than actually reading it from beginning to end, you've what you're doing is you're you're disrupting the story itself. And now we have no clue what's going on because it doesn't matter what the story says. The only thing that matters is that you're finding principles, laws that we need to ob- obey and apply to our lives. That's not why this text was written. Uh, let's take a look at it. Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah, where the Christ, was to be born. So they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen, when it rose and went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. This is amazing what we're hearing here. These men fell down and worshipped Jesus. They recognize who he is, King of the Jews and king of kings. Opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, 
Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. And when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets may be fulfilled, that he, Jesus, would be called a Nazarene. Who is this text about? This text is about Jesus. God in human flesh, King of kings, Lord of lords, the one prophesied by the prophets, the one whom Moses spoke about, the one whom all the prophets told us about, the one whom God himself said would come, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. He's here. This is who this text is about. But notice what this guy is doing. He's not telling the story. Instead, he's strip-mining the story uh, so that we can look at it from the perspective of Joseph. And by doing that, he's seeing in this text imperatives. Imperatives regarding the important thing that really this text should be teaching us. That, men, we need to be engaged. Just the way Joseph was engaged. This is not an imperative text. This is an indicative text. This is a text that announces to us what God has done for us to save us. This is not an imperative text, and he's finding laws in this, in this, in this text that are just not there. Because Herod the king was jealous of King Jesus. So he got up and took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I will call my son. What I want us to see in this passage is that God does not allow Joseph to be a bystander in this story. God requires Joseph to rise up in engagement. God gives the dreams to him. God requires. God expects. Therefore, God expects you to be engaged. This is not... This is not an imperative text. God requires him to be present, active, and vocal. Joseph has to be engaged. And finally, in chapter 2, verse 19. Now, after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take this child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Egypt in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in the town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Now here's what I want us to catch from these three passages. As this family goes through some very normal things, like choosing places to live and names for their kids. Now technically, that's not three passages. That's, if you read it in context, that's one complete narrative. But you've chopped it up into thirds or into three different readings so that you can turn this into an imperative text. And it's not. It's an indicative text. This is gospel, not law. And as they go through some very unnormal things, like escaping from a jealous king, as they go through all of this, God leads this family through the engagement of Joseph, through Joseph being present, active, and vocal. 
And through engagement, Joseph rises up to become the man that he hopes to become. Of course he is. What? He rises up to become the man he'd hoped he'd become? I didn't see anything in this text about Joseph sitting there going, Oh, I really need to be a better man, and I I need to become the man that I hope I'm going to become. And then all of a sudden, this opportunity fell in his lap, and he rose to the challenge through engagement, and he was present, active, and vocal, and he was able to finally become the man he'd hoped he wanted to become. There's nothing about that in the biblical text at all, anywhere. Because he's the man that his family is counting on him to become. And he's the man that God intends him to become. All of this, men, through engagement. Men, this God-given desire to engage. All of this through Bible twisting and eisegesis and bad hermeneutics. This is false teaching. This is false doctrine. This is wrestling the glory away from Christ and what he's done for us and turning it. Well, we can give ourselves a pat on the back after Christmas if we've been engaged and prayed the prayer of engagement. Is a powerful force for good in our lives. Ultimately, engaging is not being like Joseph. Ultimately, engaging is being like Jesus. Because Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's engagement on earth. Jesus is the very presence of God on earth. Did you catch in the passage where it says that he's Emmanuel, God with us? He's the ultimate expression of his presence. And he's the ultimate expression of God's activity on earth, dying for the sins of humanity, rising to life. And he's the ultimate expression of God's voice on earth. The scripture says that Jesus is the very word of God, delivering the message of the kingdom of God on earth. And men, this desire that we have in us to engage is just another way of saying the God-given desire to be like Jesus. Which is why when we engage, we're the man we hope we could become and the man that our family's counting on us to become and the man... Yeah, and the Christmas narratives have nothing to do with what you're talking about at all. ...that God intends us to become because it's like him. You know, I got a powerful lesson in engagement at home uh, when my wife and I were first married. Let me tell you the story. Early on in our marriage... Uh, I would go off to work and my wife would stay home working with our two toddler age daughters. Now, my wife was doing incredibly hard work at home. So what does this story from your personal life have to do with the Christmas story? Answer, absolutely nothing. Has anyone ever taken care of toddlers? Right, That's maddening work, right? That's not easy work at home. And it would drive her, of course, toddlers can drive you up the wall. It would drive her up the wall. And every now and then, my wife, you know, during the day, she would just need some adult interaction. And so when my wife got a break in the day, she would pick up the phone and my wife would call me. And it didn't matter what she was talking about. She could talk about anything. We could talk about whether we're going to have baked potatoes or mashed potatoes for dinner. Didn't matter as long as she was talking to an adult. Right? And to her, these phone calls made perfect sense. They were lifelines in her crazy day. And it made totally sense, total sense from her perspective. But from my perspective, these phone calls were totally different, right, back then. Because I was at work 
getting things done, making progress, solving problems. And while I was at work, these it's like my wife had the uncanny ability to call me at just the wrong time every time. Men, can you agree with, don't raise your hands. Do not raise your hands. Just, we all know, and we'll just hold that in our hearts. Wives have this ability, and my wife certainly did. She would call me at just the wrong time every time. And, you know, I'd be right in the middle of being so productive, and the phone ring, and she would want to talk about things that don't even matter, like whether we're having mashed potatoes or baked potatoes for dinner. Who cares? I'm at work. And to me, these phone calls were just interruptions in my productive day. And isn't it amazing that, you know, in a marriage you can see the same thing so differently, right? It's God's gift to married couples that he lets that happen. Thanks a lot, God. We appreciate it. And this was a problem in our marriage for like a year. And my wife felt like I didn't appreciate her need to have adult interaction. And I felt like she didn't appreciate my need to get stuff done at work. And I was venting to uh, Kurt Jones, a mentor of mine, who was an older pastor kind of pouring into my life. I was... Uh, venting to him how my wife would call me all the time at just the wrong time, and it's been going on for a year. And Kurt said this, time out. You've had the same problem in your house for a year, and all you do about it is complain? I said, I guess so. He said, now what would you do if you had a problem at work? Well, I, I solve problems at work. He's all, isn't it curious that you solve problems at work and not at home? I'm like, I don't like where he's going with this at all, right? And he says, Miles, I want you to be the kind of man that solves problems at home just like you do at work. And so I, I got defensive and I said, but it's not even my problem. If she's the one calling, right? It's her problem. And he said, listen, you're trying to fix the blame. And I'm trying to get you to fix the problem. Be the kind of man that solves problems at home, not just at work. See, Kurt was challenging me to be as engaged at home as I was at work. Because it's very easy for me as a man to... Yeah, he was challenging you to be as engaged as Joseph, because that's what the Christmas story is about. Work hard all day solving problems and then come home... And kind of check out and let the problems stack up. Not actually address them. See, I thought the problem was the phone calling. But when Kurt talked to me, I realized the problem wasn't the phone calls. It was my lack of engagement at home. And as soon as I got engaged, the phone call problem was really simple to solve. All I did was I made it a practice to call my wife in the mornings before she called me. It's not even that hard, is it? I just, I found a time that made sense for me at work and I called her, solved my problem. And she felt cared for. Now I'm calling her and giving her adult interaction that she needs. Problem solved. And guess what? The whole potato dilemma solved itself after this. (laughs) Never even had to talk about potatoes anymore. This has become something of a litmus test for me at my house. I know that when the problems begin to stack up at my house and when I have the same problem this year that I did last year at home, I know that I haven't been engaged as a husband. I haven't been engaged as a father. I haven't been engaged at home. See, men, when we are present, active, and vocal, we're at our very best. And this is true at home 
just like it's true at work. And why are you taking the Christmas story, the Christmas narrative, which is gospel, and turning it into marriage advice? It's not about that at all. There are passages that talk about how what husbands are to treat wives and how they are to be engaged with their wives and in, with their children. Why aren't you preaching those texts? Why are you twisting the gospel texts from the Christmas stories and turning them into law? And just like it's true at church. That's why I'm trying to get you to dive into this prayer challenge because it's going to bring out the best in you this Christmas season. So men, when you're driving to work, when you're driving home, and when you're driving to church, God help me to show up, which by the way is about being present. Help me to step up, which is about being active. And help me to speak up, which is about being vocal. It's going to bring out the best in you this Christmas season. It's going to help you rise up like Joseph to be the man that you hope you'd become. To be the man that God... So Joseph is just the, uh, the ultimate example of the engaged husband. Man, this is horrible. Intends to become, to be the man that your family is counting on you to become. All of this through rising up in engagement. And it would be easy to do if we didn't have that other desire we need to talk about. Because not only do we have the desire to engage from God, but we have another desire that's the opposite desire that we actually need to fight against, and it's the desire to disengage. And we can define disengage by the three opposite words that we define engagement by. So if to engage is to be present, to disengage is to be absent. To be absent, to not be physically, emotionally, mentally, relationally there. And men, we know how to be there, but not actually there. You know what I mean? My, my wife and I had an entire conversation the other day. Do you want to know what it's about? Yeah, I do too. I have no idea what it's about. I totally spaced it. Missed the whole thing. It can happen to me all the time. So to disengage, we become absent. And then we become, instead of active, we become passive. We become bystanders in the things happening around us. And instead of being vocal men, when we disengage, we become silent. We stop expressing the ideas, thoughts, feelings that we have inside of us. And we just kind of disengage. Now, how many men would be brave enough to admit that you have this desire in you to disengage? Of course you do. It's in us as men. Selfish part of us. All of us do as men. I was talking to a, a young lady the other day who was expressing her frustration uh, about her husband because he plays five hours of video games every day. Five hours. This is a husband and a father. <laughs> yeah. Um, are we going to call that what it is? Sinful? Now, I get that we need to disengage after work for a second. You know, we need to kind of unwind and we need to kind of, you know, refuel. But five hours, that's not unwinding. That's like a part-time job, right? That's, you can get a lot done in five hours every day. You can solve all kinds of dilemmas. And I know that I have it in me to do this. I have it in me to desire to just check out for long periods of times like that. It's almost like our culture invites us to disengage. There's so many awesome things like HDTV and our smartphones. And I guess guys are into video games. It's like these things get into our brains and make it almost impossible not uh, to disengage. 
I actually found a video describing what happens in our brains when we check out and when we disengage. So enjoy this two-minute documentary explaining the neuroscience of disengagement. It's fascinating. The basics look like this. When a person is executing on a task, you give them a task, they have to think it through and figure out what to do. It stimulates a part of the brain called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. So that's the front part of the brain here. You can imagine, you've seen pictures of the brain, so you can imagine what that looks like on the inside. You're seeing activity in that part of the brain. Now, there's another part of the brain that's really essential in this way as well, and we call it the nucleus accumbens. It's the pleasure center of the brain. If you were to see the brain from the front right here, the, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, the executive center of the brain is right here. The nucleus accumbens is down here. What happens when somebody's really working on something they find absolutely compelling and interesting? It floods this whole part of the brain with activity in a way that actually stimulates the pleasure center of the brain. So when you work at something you really find interesting, it brings pleasure to you. The studies in media are really disconcerting in this way because we're finding that video games, for example, are really overwhelming kind of media, HDTV and things like that that are so amazing and incredible in 3D. It stimulates the nucleus accumbens, the pleasure center of the brain, by draining blood away from the executive center of the brain. So it gives people the sense of accomplishment without ever having actually done anything. It has the same effect in the brain as somebody, except for the actual brain damage part of it, as somebody who smokes crack. It gives them the sense that they've done something really great when, in fact, they've done nothing at all. That's the effect that so much of the media has on kids today. And people ask me, well, you know, why are so many young men passive? I can tell you the answer. It's very simple. We've arranged the culture to trick their brains into thinking that they've done something when, in fact, they haven't. <laughs> Pretty fascinating, isn't it? Tell you what that means. That means no Xbox for Christmas, kids. Sorry. (laughs) What that video tells us, man, is when we disengage, that we're actually tricking our brains into thinking we're getting a ton done when actually we're getting nothing done. And according to the smart guy in the video, when we do that, we're like on crack. You know, we got to knock it off, you guys. We We cannot let disengagement define our story. You're dealing with an effect of our fallen and sinful nature. The solution to that is our crucified and risen Savior who bled and died for those sins and the call of the Christian pastor that Christ has given us to call people to do is to repent of their sins and to be forgiven. All you're doing here is giving a pep talk that you hope will motivate people to change behavior but you're not calling them to repent and to be forgiven from the one who the angel announced would be the one who would save his people from their sins, Jesus, which is what the Christmas story is about. We can't let ourselves off the hook to disengage. Disengagement shouldn't become our story. We can't let ourselves off the hook for that. We can let Joseph off the hook for what happens in his story. Because you know that after the scriptures we've already read where Joseph is so engaged, where he's so present, where he's so active, and he's so vocal, that the scripture's story essentially goes silent when it comes to Joseph. We know that he was around for at least a little while because Joseph and Mary have several more children. But by the time... Have you ever stopped to think that part of the reason for that is probably due to the fact that the story's not about Joseph, it's about Jesus? 
the Gospels were written to tell us about Jesus. I'm of Jesus' three-year earthly ministry. By all accounts, Joseph is, is dead. Now, it's a tragedy, obviously, when a man dies before his time. But we're talking about something else today. We're talking about the tragedy of a man becoming absent, passive, and silent. Not be- Yeah, you should be preaching the, uh, the good news of Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, to save his people from their sins. Because he's passed on, but because he's allowed himself to totally check out and disengage. That can't be our story, men. We cannot let that happen. We can't let ourselves off the hook to disengage. We can let him off the hook. We can't let ourselves off the hook because there's too much at stake in this thing. Men, do you realize that Satan's primary battle plan to destroy our families is getting us as men to disengage? Do you know that Satan's primary battle plan to destroy churches is to get them to not preach Christ and him crucified for our sins and to twist God's word? Satan doesn't mind a bit when you read a biblical text that's about the gospel and you moralize it and don't ever mention or highlight the fact that Christ bled and died for us. And then going after our wives and children who are unprotected because we're just checked out. I believe this because you can see it in the Genesis chapter 3 account of the fall. In this account, Eve is having a conversation with Satan. And we're going to read it together. And what I want you to notice is two things. First, where's Adam? And second, what is he doing? Let's read it. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the tree in the garden. But God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die. The serpent said to the woman, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Now here's Adam. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. So where's Adam when Eve is having this conversation with Satan? He's right there. And what is he doing? Absolutely nothing. Please tell me that you're going to mention the fact that Jesus is promised and prophesied there in Genesis chapter 3 because his appearing in the Christmas story is the fulfillment of the prophecy that's given by God himself in Genesis 3. Please tell me you're going to tell us about that. He's totally disengaged. Adam is totally absent. He's there but not there. He's totally passive. He's a bystander while his wife is talking to Satan. He's totally silent while everything in his life is going bad. Totally checked out, disengaged. I'll tell you what I think happened. I think there was a conversation five minutes before this conversation between Adam and Satan where Satan came up to Adam and said, let me show you this. It's called a remote control. (laughs) And he turned on the TV and we never saw Adam again. Mm -hmm, Yeah, I, I bet. Men, we can't let ourselves off the hook. There's too much on the line. There's too much on the line for us as husbands, and there's too much on the line for us as dads. Um, You didn't actually give us the good news. 
See, when uh, the, the story continues, it says uh, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This is after they ate and they realized they were naked and they sewed fig leaves to cover themselves up. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, your seed, and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The Proto-Euangelion, the first gospel, right there in Genesis chapter 3. Jesus, the one who was the promised seed of the woman, is born in the text that you were referencing from Matthew chapter 1 and 2. The one who would save his people from their sins. And you think the way you're going to save these people in your church from their sins is by giving them a pep talk rather than calling them to repent and believe in the one who bled and died for them, not even mentioning the gospel and wrestling these texts away from Jesus and making it about them? Are you out of your mind? Dads, listen, our children are counting on us to be the kind of men who will engage, to fight against disengagement. A while back, when my oldest daughter, she's 18 now, when she was five years old, I came home from work, I was tired, and I just kind of sat, you know, sat in front of the TV, turned it on, and just kind of checked out. And she was dressed up in a Disney princess costume, and she wanted my attention. So she got right in the middle of the TV, you know, and she said, Dad, look at me, am I beautiful? I said, honey, get out of the way. And she said, Dad, look at me, am I beautiful? I know I'm a terrible parent when I'm doing this. I'm like, honey, get out of the way, I'm trying to watch TV. But Megan will not be denied. So she jumps up on the coffee table in front of me. And she says, Dad, am I pretty? Look at me. And then I realized what was happening. And I said, Honey, you're so beautiful, I can't even stand it. And she jumped in my arms and we had a moment where I got to tell her how pretty she was. Well, the next day, I come home from work and I'm tired, so I just turn on the TV and start to zone out. And she's there in a Disney princess costume. This time, she just jumps right on the coffee table and she says, Dad, can you even stand it? (laughs) And I said, no, honey, I can't even stand it. And she jumped in my arms. We had a moment. Listen, dads, our children have question marks bouncing around in their hearts and souls. At any age, they do, about all kinds of things. And maybe part of our role as dads is to help be the one who turns those question marks into exclamation points. Yes, honey, I can't even stand it. I can't even stand it. Maybe that's part of what we're supposed to be doing as dads, turning question marks into exclamation points. But dads, in order to do this, there's going to have to be times where we turn off the TV, where we power down the cell phones, and when we throw away the Xbox. And we actually have conversations with our kids about the things bouncing around in their hearts. Our kids are counting on us to do this. And I know that many of you perhaps 
are uh, divorced and you don't live with your kids on a regular basis. I want to talk to you a little bit because I'm sure that that's challenging and, and uh, you know, that comes with a whole set of problems. But you're still a dad. And your children are still counting on you to be the kind of man that shows up, that steps up, and that speaks up. Your kids still have question marks bouncing around in their hearts. And you're still a dad. So be the kind of man that solves the problems. Engage. Here's the bottom line of this engagement thing, men. This disengagement thing. Disengagement brings out the very worst in us. It's true at work. And is that a sin? I would argue it is. And you're going to just basically say the solution is just pray this prayer of engagement three times a day at three different times and it'll solve the problem. What about the Savior who bled and died for those sins? What about repentance and being forgiven? It's true at home. It's true at church. When we disengage, we become less and less the men we hope we would become. We become less and less the men that our families are counting on us to become. We become less and less the men that God intends us to become. That's why this prayer challenge could be so important for us this Christmas season. It might be the tool. Yeah, I I guarantee you the good news of Christ dying for our sins is way more important than your prayer challenge. That God will use to help us engage. So God, help us to show up, help us to step up, and help us to speak up. Men, as you're driving to work, pray the prayer of engagement. As you're driving home, pray the prayer of engagement. As you're driving to church, pray the prayer of engagement. And when you pray... Do you really think that's going to solve the problem? Stay with me. When you pray, you're inviting the God who is... You know, inviting him to be your strength. And he is more present, more active, and more vocal than you could ever imagine. And when you pray and ask him for help, you're inviting God to show up, to step up, and to speak up on your behalf. And that's a powerful thing, man. And if that doesn't encourage you to do this prayer of engagement challenge, I have no idea what will. That was my best shot to encourage you. That's the challenge for the men. And ladies, I told you there'd be a challenge for you. I've not forgotten. Lady, the cha- ladies, the challenge for you. Do you have any good news to proclaim to the people in your church? Is to let this be a sermon from me rather than from you for the men in your life. <laughs> it's going to be hard, I know. Said another way, let me be the preacher of this message rather than you. Your role, perhaps, would be to take this message and better appreciate, better understand, and better pray for the men in your life, keeping in mind two things. First, that you can struggle with disengagement just like men can, right? You can, you can be absent, passive, and silent, and you can maybe this prayer challenge is also for you. And second, you might want to keep in mind that next week we're going to be talking about Mary and the women and what's going on in a woman's heart. And you might want to know what that sermon is going to be about before you start talking to the men in your life about this sermon, right? You might want to know that. So that's the challenge for you. Now everyone has been challenged, so it's time to turn the service over to the campus pastors. As we close the teaching, it seemed right to show you the story of a good friend of mine, James Wright. As you watch this video, I want uh, of James and the story of James Wright. I thought you were preaching a Christmas text. Why aren't we hearing the story of Jesus? his wife, Tekla, what I want you to see is a, is a man 
going through very difficult things over an extended period of time. And as he's going through these things, I want you to notice how he's fighting to engage and fighting against disengagement and ultimately becoming the man that God intends him to become. Enjoy the video. I'm James Wright, and I was born in Columbus, Georgia. And then when I was four, we moved up to Snellville. So I've been in Gwinnett County since I've been four years old. Both my parents really believed in family. Um, they're from South Georgia, so uh, Hogginsville from my mom's side and Columbus on my dad's. And it's old Southern type of, you know, family first. You never throw out family. You never turn away back on family. You don't ever run from family. Before I joined the military, I worked at David Buster's and I was head of security there. So that's kind of how I met my recruiter and got in. But I was on one leave and I was still working for them on the, you know, some of the weekends because I was stationed at Fort Stewart right there in Savannah. So I'd come up almost every weekend. I met my wife on my birthday. We were inseparable for the next five days. Uh, in the five days, I knew I was going to marry her. I'm not quite sure she did, but I sure did. We knew we were meant to be together. So we were married about three months later. I deployed, which means we could only communicate. We could only talk. There was no other way, no other form. So it worked great for foundational communication of marriage, <laughs> you know, whether we liked it or not. I came home in July for R&R, a two weeks leave, and I got to see my wife, and she became pregnant. I didn't find out until almost August. She told me over the phone in Iraq. It was a very uh, happy day. When good things in life happen, you celebrate, and uh, we all did. It was joyous. <laughs> so Mariah was born March uh, 2006. She's born, she's kind of squirmy, and they take her to mom, and uh, she starts turning really blue. Uh, she passed uh, July 29th of 2006, just about four months later. I'm used to taking care of things. I always have been, you know, just the way I was raised, but then you have the military where you really take care of things, you know. I can't fix Mariah, my wife's upset. You know, obviously she's distraught, and you know I'm not ready to help emotionally. You know, I just fought a war. I have no, I have no emotions left. So after you know, a couple of years, uh, we decided to try again, and we tried for two years. So the, you know, we're four years after Mariah, and um, she got pregnant. And the first thing that happened, we're terrified. I, you know, we were worried about you know, you know, the worst things that could happen, and and they did. She had birth effects and had a miscarriage. And then we turn around and she gets pregnant right away. We're like, okay. And she miscarries again. So, I mean, back-to-back -back miscarriages after four years of trying. We weren't, weren't, you know, the happiest of folks. I had to do something. I couldn't fix those. So I poured myself into work. You know, that's the only thing I could do is how I cope. I fix things. I work hard. And I worked 80 hours a week hard. I didn't want to come home. I didn't want to deal with it. Um, it's very easy to justify your feelings when you're working all the time. You're going, oh, I'm doing my best for my family, but you're just really kind of not, you're not there instead of actually dealing with what was going on. It was costing me uh, my relationship with my wife. We were two married people just home. I wasn't happy. She wasn't happy. I couldn't make it right. And so I turned to God and I prayed, asked for, for help, and, and he says, Focus on your family. I'll handle everything else. I want you to work hard for them. <laughs> Immediately, a weight lifted. 
And next day I was happier. I felt motivated to really focus on relationships and everything started getting better between me and my wife. Where did you have this conversation with God again? Did you read that in a biblical text? End of February, first part, 2014, just this past one, she was pregnant again. And the same fears did come up. I mean, of course, immediately. Okay, what's going to happen? We're going to lose this baby, you know. And But this time it was way different. Uh, we both just had a piece about it. We're like, you know, we, we get to enjoy this one. So instead of worrying, we both decided that we would just endure it and uh, enjoy it. So on November 15th, 10.31 a.m., uh, Lana Ann Marie Wright was born. Seven pounds, six ounces, uh, 20 inches long and mellow. It was great. <laughs> so uh, here we are at the end of a decade-long journey. Ten long years, but uh, it ends with my daughter here. It was worth every minute of it to get this. I mean, my gosh, she's beautiful. And she's my daughter, and I get to be her dad. God knew exactly what he was doing. I have a house and a loving wife, a family close by. This is the absolute perfect time. I wouldn't trade it for a thing. Not not one second. A powerful story. Not as powerful as the story of Jesus' birth. You've basically scrapped the story of Jesus' birth to tell us the story of this man's daughter being born. And she, just like me, just like you, just like everybody else, is born a sinner in need of the Savior. And the Savior is the one who was born for her on Christmas morning. And rather than preaching Christ and the Savior, you're preaching this man's daughter. I would consider that to be a, a poor substitute. I mean, yeah, the music was, you know, tugging on my heart's strings. And yeah, sad story. But what have you done with Jesus? That's the baby I want to hear about at Christmas. Cool. Let's uh, let's pray together, shall we? No. No. Nope, nope, nope. What has happened to Christ's church that we don't preach him? That's That sermon, by the way, was the perfect quintessential example of moralistic, therapeutic deism. That wasn't a Christian handling of the gospel message, which is the Christian message. Wow. I don't think I have anything else I need to say. It's absolutely sad and tragic. Pray for the people of 12 Stone that their pastors repent of this nonsense. All right. We're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.